0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at Antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Steve. Morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Pete. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, really glad to have you with us today. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, the passage Steve just read for us, verses 15 through 20. Um, Just so you know, we've uh, been trying to get AC down here for several months, and uh, some of you know what that struggle's like this time of year. Uh, So... I'm sorry about that. We're not there yet, but any day now, it should be coming in. So feel free to um, make yourself comfortable however you need to. So. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is contrasting life under the kingdom of God with life outside the kingdom. Or in other words, he's describing some of the ways in which Christ's church ought to live radically different than the world around it. And um, the way he does it in this passage is really through giving several warnings, um, speaking seriously to communities of Christ followers about how easy it is, if we're not paying attention, to fall into the ways of the world. Which is why he starts in verse 15 with this warning, be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. So one of the best things we can do as followers of Jesus is to create space in our lives to reflect on how we're living. So instead of just going with the flow, it's a charge to build in rhythms of self-examination and self-awareness to reflect and to ask ourselves, is the way that we're living really the way we want to live? And so he goes on to say that we want to be wise, making the most of every opportunity. Wisdom is different than knowledge. It's possible to have lots of knowledge, lots of facts, lots of figures, Lots of truths in our head. Wisdom is knowing what to do with that knowledge. And more specifically, as it relates to the way we live under the lordship of Christ, wisdom is the ability to integrate our knowledge into our lives. So this isn't just a charge to learn a lot and to know a lot. This is a charge... To a life dependent upon the spirit of God where we are actually getting to live out the things that have been revealed to us as truth so when I was 21 one of my first mentors a pastor by the name of Terry McGlasson put it to me in a way that I will never forget he said that wisdom is living your life as though you were living it for the second time Now, that may seem a little trite or cheesy or meme or something like that. And if that's how it strikes you, feel free to take it or leave it. But for me, I'll never forget it. Wisdom is living your life as though you were living it for the second time. So fast forward in your imagination to the end of your life. You're 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, whatever. You're on your deathbed. And then all of a sudden, you're given this opportunity to go back and to live your life all over again. If you were given that opportunity, how would you live? If you were living for the second time, what would you do the same? What would you do differently? Imagine what that opportunity would look like. And wisdom is saying, I'm gonna live that way the first time around. I'm going to take what I know, what I understand, what I've received as truth from Scripture and in Christ, and I'm going to make the most, as Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. I'm going to really think through who I want to be and what I want to do and what I want to have and how I want to live and the legacy I want to live, and I'm going to live as though I were living for the second time through. Paul says, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he goes on to specifically talk about one of the ways that we can end up missing out. Like if we're not paying attention, if we're not careful, if we're not really intentional and deliberate in the way that we're stewarding this one life that God has given us, he says we're going to miss out. And the example he gives in verse 18 is do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk on wine. So I know what you're thinking here in Bend. It says don't get drunk on wine. doesn't say anything about beer, right? (laughs) Um, I'd like to argue that what Paul says about wine here could probably apply to most alcoholic beverages as well as most other... uh, non-prescription drugs and probably a bunch of other stuff too. But we're going to talk about alcohol for a little bit. So first, what Paul says here isn't that Christians shouldn't drink, um, but that Christians shouldn't get drunk. And really the idea here is that he's emphasizing a life or a pattern of habitual drunkenness. Why? Not just because it's immoral and something that good Christians don't do, but because it's incompatible with life in the spirit. He says that a life being filled with wine and a life of being filled with the Holy Spirit are actually mutually exclusive. You can't do both. Don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the spirit. And again, I don't think he's just talking about wine or even just alcohol or drugs here. I think he's talking about what is it that controls your life? What's the thing that holds the reins to your existence, your decisions, your lifestyle, your attitudes, your relationships? Who's in control? Is it the Spirit of God, the Spirit who controlled the life of Jesus, or is it something else? I want to take a couple of minutes this morning to tell you some of my story with alcohol. And uh, it kind of feels weird to do that, but it would also feel weird for me to speak on this topic without sharing from my own, exist- my own experience. When I was uh, 26, Jen and I were newlyweds and we moved to Corvallis to plant a new church. and. Um, it was around that time that I really, really started to enjoy a good craft beer. And uh, I'd grown up in a home without any alcohol and made it mostly through high school and college without ever drinking a whole lot. Um, but now, as a church planter, I was pretty optimistic about the role that beer could play in building community and living on mission and enjoying everything good that God had made. Our church actually met in a bar and uh, being conversant in alcohol was a plus as a church planter. And so for the eight years that we were in Corvallis, alcohol, and specifically craft beer, was a pretty big part of my everyday life. And I even started homebrewing and uh, making amazing beers, and eventually was making special kegs for parties and weddings and friends. And um, In those days, I would occasionally drink a little bit too much for the most part, I really just enjoyed the varieties of beer and the creative process, the way a good drink could bring people together. And I was committed to drinking Christianly. Um, And on those occasions or celebrations where I did have one too many, I would justify it by quoting Socrates, all things in moderation, including moderation. Right? (laughs) some of you, that's the only thing you're going to get out of this whole survey. So when we moved to Bend, almost seven years ago now, um, one of the things I was most excited about was the beer scene here. And, um, you know, 90,000 people, 25 breweries. It blew my mind that the gas station in our neighborhood had 61 beers on tap. Like, (laughs) this is a very uh, unique place, kind of a beer lover's paradise. And um, so it was fun and dove right in. We furnished our kitchen with pint glasses from all the local brew pubs and um, had a blast. Drank a lot of beer. Um, at some point in that first year, our daughter, Emma, who was only six or seven at the time, um, she'd been having some health issues, and so we took her in, did some tests, and uh, turns out she had celiac disease, and so, It's a genetic thing and so our whole family um, got tested. Now I hadn't been to the doctor in years. Um, Health insurance wasn't real strong as a church planter. So I went in and got tested for celiacs and found a doctor to go see. And um, the good news was I didn't have celiacs, but my doctor was very angry with me um, about the general state of my health. And I kid you not, the very first time I saw her, she chewed me out so hard that she made me cry. (laughs) Um, And she said things like that if I wanted to live to walk my daughters down the aisle, then I'd better make some big lifestyle changes. Uh, It was maybe a little bit dramatic, but it actually got my attention. And so uh, one of the changes that she prescribed was to quit drinking beer. Um, She said beer is the worst thing for you. She's like drink anything else, drink wine or hard cider or hard alcohol even, but just no more beer, which is when I cried for the second time. But, um, (laughs) and it was a bummer. I didn't want to, but it's like, all right, well, I'm gonna walk my daughters down the aisle. So, um, so there's other stuff. So I went and stocked the fridge with hard cider and loaded the wine rack with nice bottles and stocked our liquor, liquor cabinet and all in the name of health. Um, (laughs) And I can't say for sure, but I think somewhere around then is when the flip, the switch flipped. And um, you know, I could no longer pop a can of beer after work and so instead I'd shake up a couple martinis or open a bottle of wine. and, And I think this was really the first time where I found myself needing a drink. And the power of hard alcohol was a quick fix and gradually I found myself drinking more and drinking more often. Fueling up before we'd go out, pre-drinking before a party, bringing along extra just in case. And what happened was, uh, well it turns out that when you struggle with depression, regular mass consumption of a depressant maybe isn't a great idea. And my drinking and my depression fed off each other, my mental, emotional, and physical health were all tanking. And this was kind of a process of over several years. Um, It was around the beginning of 2019 where I finally started being honest with myself about what was happening. It wasn't a good direction, that this thing had started taking control of my life. And so I decided I was gonna draw a line and take a break. I was gonna go an entire year, all of 2019, without alcohol. That was it. January 1st, a fresh start. I made it nine days. (laughs) And I was right back where I started. And at that point, finally ready to admit I probably had a problem. And so after long and hard conversations with Jen, um, the first thing I did was to share with the elders at Antioch here what had been going on and how bad things had gotten. And I knew that one of the biblical qualifications for church leadership is not given to wine. And uh, I was failing at that. Um, thankfully by the grace of God my drinking never led to other sin didn't hurt anyone or make any bad decisions or anything like that but it itself had become a problem and so came to the elder board here the team that I'm accountable to and told them the truth not because it was like the right or noble thing to do but because I couldn't bear the burden on my own anymore I needed somebody in it with me. I needed their help. I needed community. I needed to trust myself to them, which is to say, to submit myself to them. The next thing I did was go back to my mean doctor, and um, she had me fill out one of those lifestyle forms where it asks you how many drinks you have a day and that sort of thing. And I had decided for the first time in my life, I'm going to answer those questions honestly. You should try it sometime. And uh, I did, and after reviewing my questionnaire and a long conversation, um, she gave me a diagnosis. Severe alcohol abuse disorder. Which was not a surprise to me. But it was a big deal to have it in writing and make it official. And that was around the time where I kind of finally came to admit that I will never be able to drink like a normal person. And what had been a fun and even good part of my life for many years was now over. And so um, with the support of my family and the elders, I got in touch with a therapist in Gig Harbor, Washington, and set a date for a three-week silent retreat because As much as drinking itself can be problematic, it's rarely the problem itself. It's almost always the symptom of an underlying, deeper problem. And I knew that was the case. So instead of like rehab or something, I decided to go somewhere where I could take a deep dive into my own soul and into my own story and try to deal with the things beneath the things. And so I signed up for this retreat, which many of you will remember when I did this several years ago. Um, one of the requirements for the retreat was that I have to, had to be off of all substances for at least three months before I went. And so I had to quit taking my antidepressant, I had to quit chewing, had to quit alcohol if I wanted to go. And so I looked at the calendar, I set a quit date, July 5th, 2019 because you got to get one last 4th of July party in, right? Go out with a bang. Um, So I did it. And uh, by the time the retreat came, I was uh, 90 days off of everything. Um, Some of you will remember, but the retreat I went on was 21 days by myself in a cabin on Fox Island in Puget Sound. And I had no screens, no phone, no books, no outside contact, other than a two-hour therapy session at 5 a.m. every day. And the rest of the time, I was dealing with God and dealing with myself. And it was brutal. But it was exactly what I needed. I'll spare you the details of all the therapy and all the stuff, Um, that went on during that time and all that's gone on since then. But I will tell you that as of today, it's been 772 days since I've had a drink. The last month on July 5th, I got my two-year chip, which uh, I don't go to meetings or anything, so I just ordered one off Amazon. Um, <laughs> but during that retreat, there were very few warm and fuzzy moments. It was really excruciating for the most part. Um, but there were a couple moments, call them breakthroughs or divine visitations or whatever. And one of them came as I was wrestling with God in prayer over the damage that my drinking and depression had done and my fears about being able to stay sober for the long haul. And in the midst of that, the Spirit of God nudged me to open my Bible, the one book I was allowed to have, and, and to walk through Jesus' story with alcohol. And so I did. Um, here's what I found walking through Jesus' story with alcohol. It seems pretty clear that Jesus liked to drink. The first miracle he does is turn water into wine, and not just a little wine. He made between 120 and 180 gallons of wine at the end of this party. Um, so one gallon is about five of our normal-sized bottles of wine. So he made between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. So a Costco-sized pallet <laughs> full of wine. Um, Jesus wasn't opposed to drinking. And actually... Listen to one of the rumors that people spread about him, Matthew 11. It says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here's what's great. Jesus never sinned. He was without sin, but he lived in such a way that people accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. This used to be my life verse that... As a follower of Jesus, I wanted this to be my goal as well. Not to sin, but to be accused of living in such a way. Seriously, the fact that Jesus came and ate and drank with sinners deeply shaped my theology of alcohol for a long time. It still does. It's part of how I came to embrace alcohol. as part of being a church planter and a pastor. Um, But you have to drink pretty often to be accused of being a drunkard. Jesus wasn't opposed to drinking. But later on in his story, something changes. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples. And he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And then he pours this big goblet of wine. And he raises it up and he says, Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When I first saw this, it blew my mind and melted my heart. Just at a very personal level, Jesus quit drinking too. There was a time for him when it was good and it was right to drink And then there was a time where it was good and right for him to stop. He knows what it's like. And for me, this is one of those moments where the compassion of Christ comforted my soul in a way that nothing else ever could. We know Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize in our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. I can say in all seriousness that when I quit drinking, Jesus was my accountability partner. He knows what it's like, which meant the world to me, realizing that he's been tempted in every way. Even after he quit, there were probably times where a drink sounded really good, In fact, we know of one of them, Mark 15. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. My friend, uh, AJ Swoboda, says this is the only time in the gospels when Jesus turns down a drink. while he's being crucified. In the moment of his worst pain and humiliation. Which is crazy, because that's exactly the kind of moment that I would want to drink the most. Something to numb the pain. But Jesus doesn't drink the wine. And the reason is, is because he's already chosen to drink deeply of something else. In Matthew 26, Jesus prays, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. In the hours before his arrest, Jesus is wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so he takes that sorrow and he cries out to God. Wishing that there was some other path, some easier way. But in the end, instead of alcohol, the cup that Jesus drinks from is the cup of sorrow. Instead of numbing or trying to escape, He chooses to be present with God. He chooses to face his pain rather than ignore it. Pain isn't suffering. Suffering is what happens when pain is ignored. And so rather than ignore his pain through numbing, Jesus brings his pain to God in prayer. And he chooses God's will over his own comfort. And he saves the world in the process. Three days later, spoiler alert, Jesus has risen from the dead. And his disciples don't know it yet. So he walks up alongside a couple of them on a road and starts up a conversation with him. But they still don't recognize him until, Luke 24, when he was at the table with them. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Sounds a lot like that last supper. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So the last time they had been with him was at that last supper. It was also at a table. And now they recognize him, like, oh, this is familiar. But notice what's different between the two meals. In this meal, on the night of the first Easter, Jesus breaks the bread, gives thanks, and gives it to him. But there is no wine. There's no cup. So even after his resurrection, Jesus continues to abstain because his job isn't done yet. But one day, he's going to drink again. Remember what he said at the Last Supper in Matthew 26? I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. Jesus will drink again. And his last miracle is going to be even better than his first. Instead of just transforming water into wine, he's going to transform this entire old world into a new creation. And just like his first, his last miracle is also going to involve a wedding. Revelation 19 gives us this picture. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. See, when Christ returns to reconcile all things to himself, he'll take his bride, which is us the church and he'll pour a huge glass of wine and we're all going to drink it with him together. So I'm taking it day by day, but my plan is that the next glass of wine I drink is going to be with Jesus in the new creation. (laughs) Now, just so we're clear, I'm sharing some of my story, sharing some of Jesus' story as it relates to alcohol. What I'm not saying is that everybody here needs to quit drinking. And if you're able to enjoy alcohol Christianly, then do it. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And you don't need to feel weird around me. Um, Jen still drinks a glass of wine most evenings. The kids are kind of getting into the White Claws. <laughs> Just kidding. They're not. I'm, I'm good with it. Um, so... This is not a blatant statement. But for those of you that are wondering if drinking's become something that you need to think about a little bit, um, for me, I subscribe to Chris Rock's definition of a drinking problem. If alcohol is screwing up any part of your life, work, finances, marriage, relationships, physical health, mental health, if your drinking's taking a toll on any part of your life, and it's probably worth uh, taking a look at. And uh, if that's you, I'd encourage you to take the first step in opening up with somebody you trust. Can't do it alone. The truth is, the Bible has a lot of good stuff to say about alcohol. I know all the verses, but it also gives a lot of warnings. One is in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists some of the people who aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he includes drunkards alongside those who are greedy, the thieves, the sexually immoral. And what he's talking about is not these are people who aren't going to heaven after they die. That's not how the kingdom of God is used in the Bible. He's talking about who gets to enjoy a life of freedom and joy in the spirit when their life is controlled by the spirit of Christ Christ not something else. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So this is why Paul says that instead of getting drunk all the time, Christians should sing and make music when we get together. Back to Ephesians, verse 18. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. That's why we sing when we get together. Every church around the world. When the church of Jesus gathers for worship, we are rehearsing for eternity. We're giving the world a sneak peek of the world that is to come. Just like we talked about last week with the church as Epcot, an experimental prototype prototype community of tomorrow. When we sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord, we're living as visitors from the future. And finally, last verse, Paul says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So my journey with drinkings led me to a place where I genuinely feel like I've been given a second chance. God saved me from my sin and gave me a new life. So if I ever find myself complaining about my life or feeling entitled to more than what I have, then I'm missing it. Which is why wisdom will always be marked by gratitude. Because in Christ, we do get to live for a second time. Every day we have is grace. It's all a gift. That's true for me, and that's true for each of you. And I know that your story is different than mine, but I also know that you have been forgiven, saved from your sins, given a new life, and brought into a new family. So we ought to be the most grateful people on the planet as the Church of Christ. Christians should be known for gratitude and thankfulness. Do you know what the difference is between the two? Gratitude is something you feel. Thanksgiving is something you do. One of the most Christian things that we can do is to say thank you to God, to each other, to everyone that we can, to let our gratitude Turn in to thanksgiving. Give thanks to God the Father for everything. We're going to close our service with an opportunity to practice what the scriptures teach us to do. The word that Paul uses in verse 20 for giving thanks is Eucharistio, which is, of course, where Christians get the word Eucharist, another name for the Lord's table. So the bread and cup are a meal of thanksgiving. A chance for us to express our gratitude to God for the life that He's given us in Jesus. And then we'll rehearse for the great wedding by singing one last song together. So, Pastor Amy's gonna come and lead us to the table this morning.